The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Why don't you remain standing and I'll read uh, from Mark chapter 15. We're instructed to bring our meditations this fall semester uh, from the book of Mark. And I've chosen for our meditation this morning uh, this passage from describing the crucifixion, the passion of our Lord at verse 21 and reading up through verse 39. This is God's word. Give careful attention to it. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, And the written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, he said, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this and said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick, offering it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. That's the reading of God's word. May he bless us to our hearing and our obedience. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Indeed, it is broader than all the heavens. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take away the lackluster from our eyes and we might see this portion of your word anew, especially in its sublimity. O Lord, uh, take away the hardness that so often covers our hearts and help us to see afresh. Father, grant us reverence and humility without which no one can understand your word. We ask this for Jesus' namesake. Amen. may be seated. There have been many martyrs in the history of the church whose behavior has not only been intrepid but even heroic. Thank us, Stephen. Uh, who recounted in that redemptive historical sermon as he looked up to the heavens and was about ready to be stoned and he saw God seated in his majesty upon his throne. 
And the words of that first martyr are immortalized in Scripture. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Or think of the comments of Jim Elliot, immortalized later by uh, his wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, who wrote about his death and also his life leading up to his death and his martyrdom. You know the story and how it goes. They found uh, these missionaries out on the frontier uh, trying to reach an an uh, unchurched people group uh, who had never heard the gospel, namely the Aka Indians, and he was known for that famous comment, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So such is the testimony of many brave martyrs in the church. Some of us have taken ordination vows that would require us not to deny the faith if put to the test, and we trust that God, by his grace, would give us the same courage and the same bravery in the time of need. But Jesus' death was no mere martyr's death. There was no consolation for our Lord on the cross. There was no respite. He did not die an ordinary death, not even a martyr's death. It was much, much more as the fourth saying on the cross, this enigmatic but profound statement spoken in the language of the people, namely this kind of Hebraicized Aramaic, because that's what it is. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I want to talk briefly about that in our meditation on the scriptures this morning. Can we plumb the depths of this saying upon the cross in all its mystery and yet understand, at least in part, what uh, our Lord was saying. In doing this, I'll talk about four points, not three. First of all, I want to state what the problem is, okay? And then we'll go on to the other three points as well. So the problem is, what are we to understand by, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a hard saying, perhaps the hardest saying of the seven sayings uttered upon the cross that are recorded for us in the Gospels. What are we to ascribe to this death cry, this cry of dereliction in the old sense of the word, this cry of abandonment? It has difficulties fraught in it, and uh, it potentially has problems for our doctrine of the Trinity, perhaps problems for the person of Christ in the very doctrine of atonement. Uh, Just ask Professor Horton, uh, about the deep-seated problems and debates that are going on uh, at Princeton now, in which he's asked to speak to even this summer, uh, largely having to do uh, with the subject that we're meditating upon this morning. One New Testament scholar has, uh, has even said, I've sometimes thought that there never was an utterance that reveals more amazingly the distance between feeling and facts. And what this has led some to do is to soften this statement, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now that we've talked about part of the problem, now I want to talk about what it is not. First of all, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not the mere feeling that our Lord is expressing here. In other words, there's a group of suggestions that you might categorized under the so-called feeling theory about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here the essence of this position is the following. Does this describe 
what actually took place, or is it merely a reflection of our Lord's own emotions in that he felt as though he was abandoned upon the cross? In other words, in other words was Christ really forsaken by God, or did he simply feel that he had been forsaken? Well, without going into detail and getting distracted by a discussion of this particular theory, the problem with this is really that it imparts and imputes our frailty to the Savior at this point. There are times, surely, that we feel as though we have been forsaken, even perhaps forsaken by God, but that is not a full or robust description of what's going on here at the cross when our Lord and Savior cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words imply trust. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's perhaps what is the most popular theory in discussing what it is not, namely this saying, the misapplication of Psalm 22. If you look at Psalm 22, which we sang a piece of this morning in preparation for this meditation, you'll notice that these are the first words of Psalm 22. And so this theory goes uh, as follows. Um, You see, it's only quoting the beginning of the psalm. Okay, And the theory wants to remind us that these are only the first and opening words of the psalm. And when you go on in the psalm, you see that this is a lament par excellence and that it actually has much more to say about the lament and that Jesus is using these words and the further words to console himself by reciting the psalm, and we see embedded in the gospel only a portion of that quote, namely what he cried out here. And if you uh, look at the rest of the psalm, you will see later expressions of trust if you keep reading on in Psalm 22. Now there's something devilish here, I would suggest. Because in this particular theory, what you're doing is you're predicating about the Lord and Savior that he is consoling himself by the later words of the psalm and that the words quoted from the beginning of the psalm are not uttered in such a way to reflect the true meaning of what he is portrayed as saying. Another twist on this particular theory and one that came forward afterwards is that Somehow the thought that Christ would cry out with this cry of dereliction upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was offensive to early Christians. And therefore, what they did is they composed a psalm and inserted it, namely Psalm 22 and the quote here, in order to soften the blow of these words. This is a theory attached with the New Testament scholar Debellius. Well, I think you can see that that view has its shortcomings as well. Then there is the so-called psychological theory, that Christ through his life is suppressing these feelings of abandonment since he subjected himself to the law. And even before he got to the cross and utters this cry of dereliction, we know that he was abused by gainsayers and that people didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And so... Feeling abandoned by God, he suppresses and beats down and fights down these feelings that finally come forth in a kind of catharsis, if you will, on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The 
problem with all these interpretations, as Professor Bovink commented years ago, is that they do not do justice to the words and conflict with a continuous description of Jesus' death as delineated in the scriptures. The lament of Christ is not merely subjective, but rather it's an objective abandonment. It is not merely that Christ feels himself to be forsaken, but that he actually is forsaken by God. His his sense of it was not the product of his own imagination. It did not rest on false assumption, but it corresponded with reality. And hence, what I want to turn your attention to this morning, having looked at part of the problem, because, brothers and sisters, you're on the edges and the cusp here of great mystery when you look at this fourth cry upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father genuinely abandoned the Son upon the cross. That much can be said. That ushers in and elicits a whole series of questions in order to understand what your Savior went through on the cross for your sake, for my sake. So having talked about the problem and what it is not, now let's plumb the depths and see if we can at least in some small approximate way talk about what it is. It is a hard saying, but we must trace out Revelation according to our best lights and see what we can say about it. First of all, what it is. It is a genuine, objective abandonment. It is a cry of death. First and foremost, it is a fact of an objective abandonment by the Father towards the Son. Albeit temporary and relative, nevertheless, it is real. Think about the pericope that occurs right before this and in all the Gospels. Okay? Our Lord and Savior is agonizing in the garden. Chapter 14, 33. He is deeply distressed and troubled. The language is vivid and even shocking when you look at it in the original. 1436. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me if it be possible. And pour into that image of cup all the content that would have resonated for the audience in that day. This is a metaphor and an image having to do with the wrath of God. And our, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, knew that the wrath of God was about ready to be poured out upon him to the dregs, to the bottom. And he was going to experience it. And he was going to go through that. His death was so different than any other martyr. It was no mere martyr's death. This summer, one of my delights in traveling was to go to Cambridge. And one of my chief delights was to visit some of the bookstores in Cambridge, being a bit of a bibliophile. And I can remember Dr. Van Dixorn coming and grabbing me after he had pointed us to this particular bookstore that we should go to and saying, oh, you must come see what I have found. And there, in an ironically Catholic church, not far away from the bookstore we were, was a pulpit that he wanted to show me that was on loan from the British Museum, Bishop Latimer's. Here it is, this pulpit, hundreds of years old. You remember King Edward died in England, and then the succession of uh, Bloody Mary, so-called, ensued in July of 1553, Three bishops put to their death. 
Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer. And in the annals of history, we know that it was said of Latimer in an effort to encourage his comrade Ridley uh, at the point of uh, death, saying, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, we shall die uh, this day. However, a light such as the candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Cranmer, six months later, would be also burned at the stake for the last-minute surprise of the denounce of the Pope. And as for the Pope, I refuse him with all his false doctrine. But Jesus' death was different, at least the way in which he died. You see, it was not that Jesus feared death or was anxious about the death that he was about ready to die and go through. It was the kind of death. It was the essence of the death that he was about ready to die. It was the abandonment that he faced. It was no mere martyr's death. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What can be said about it? First of all, negatively stated. The forsaking of Jesus... This real abandonment can, first of all, be regarded as a withdrawal of all the creaturely comforts of our Lord and Savior. All the means by which God, through his common and special grace, normally upholds a creature. Notice, the Son is gone. The honor that was his has been put to shame. There is no comeliness in him who existed before all creation and glory. There are no angels to hold him up. There is no spiritual fellowship. There is no Holy Spirit to support him, even by the still small voice um, to which one uh, would expect he could be privy to. That's negatively stated. Positively stated, what was this abandonment? God is pouring forth his unmitigated wrath upon the Son. As Klaus Skilder, I think, appropriately describes it, it's as if Jesus is like an early Christian in the arena. And they're looking at all those animals about ready to tear at his flesh. And there is one who supervises the lifting up of the cages in order to release the dragons of torment upon them, be they lions, dogs, or whatever. Think about this. Your Savior looked and saw the Father superintending the release of all that unmitigated wrath. It was the Father who unleashed all the horrors upon the Son. There is no staying of the hand. It is the Father pouring out the wrath upon the Son. This is a veritable descent into hell. You see, Christ must be identified with man in every respect, including experiencing the essence of death, separation of the soul from God. And orthodoxy says he suffered in his soul as well as his body. And here we see in this fourth saying upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the best commentaries on the creed, he descended into hell. 
in modern colloquial English, Christ went through hell for you. Christ went through hell for you so that you may live. You may not have been there clamoring for his death. You may not have been there driving the nails. You may not have been there lying and trumping up charges against your Lord and Savior. But Christ, if you be in him, went through hell for you. And it was a real, objective abandonment. The Father, with unmitigated wrath, all the horrors of the book of Revelation, think of the imagery, and more, were poured out upon our Savior for your sake, my sake. And it was your sin, if you be in Christ, for which he went through that trial by ordeal. Christ died a death of God-forsakenness. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about Paul's comments elsewhere in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung upon the tree. Now what about the Trinity? Having described the problem, so to speak, having described what it is not, all these silly, dumb, imaginative ideas, having described at least positively and negatively somewhat what it is, now the fourth point, bask in the mystery of it all. Don't fall into the rationalism of trying to fully exhaust an explanation. But listen to what the scriptures say, and then just sit at ease with the mystery. It is a real objective abandonment, And yet, the Holy Spirit and the Father are not mere spectators. With regards to persons of the Trinity, who died for your sins? It was not the Father who died for your sins upon the cross. It can only be predicated about the Son, that he is the one that atoned for sins. But nevertheless, the Father and the Spirit were no mere spectators. Listen to the scriptural justification for this. Hebrews chapter 9, 14. Through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without spot to God. Surely John Murray is right to identify the eternal Spirit as the Holy Spirit. The Father was no mere spectator, even though mystery of mysteries, he objectively abandoned the Son. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. All things are of God who reconciled us to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You see, there is no disjunction between the Father and the Son. There is alienation. There is propitiation of the Father's wrath. But nevertheless... It was Christ who humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death. And the Trinity always acts in unity together. 
The Father, through the Son, is clearing away all his holy alienation to make way for the reconciled favor and peace towards his loved ones, his children. People of God, we are surely on the borders of great mystery here. But did you notice the response from the crowd in the midst of this mystery? No wonder they didn't understand as Jesus cried out in this Hebraicized Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No wonder Pilate later in this chapel wondered at the fact that Christ was dead already and so soon. No wonder the temple veil was rent in two, a very interesting use of the divine passive, which shows you another case in which the Father was present as the ultimate agent. And then there is the response of the centurion, verse 39. A pagan confession in the midst of the courtroom of God. Truly, truly, this was the Son of God. When he looked at the countenance with which the Son died, he had to stand back and on and say, truly, this was the Son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For this reason, you can cry out, my God, my God, why have you accepted me? Because Christ went through hell for you upon the cross. Do you love to linger in front of the cross? Do you wonder how to apply this passion narrative? Just meditate upon it. Because it's here more than anywhere else that holiness is felt. It's here more than anywhere else at the foot of the cross where you may realize that you stand before a holy God who loves you profoundly because he was willing to go through hell on your behalf. Do you love to linger in front of the cross, not because merely of an angry God above or hell below pushes you towards more holy living, but because holiness is seen to reign and it is evident at the cross. People of God, men and women, brothers and sisters, Jesus paid a tremendous price on our behalf. Let us praise him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your sending the Son in order to die on behalf of your people for even becoming a curse for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for such love. It is marvelous, too marvelous to comprehend. It is full of love. And, Lord, we praise you uh, for it. Father, would you move us even by this message this day? Help us, O oh Lord, in light of these eternal verities to work out our faith with trembling. We ask this in Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.